building up godly men for a better tomorrow. This is On the Edge with Ken Harrison, where we inspire men of integrity to put faith into action together. And now, here's today's show. So, Chaco, man, uh, you were seen as one of Time Magazine's most influential men. That's pretty pretty awesome. And I, I just got to, you know, starting off, how does a guy who's an uh, outright fundamentalist, Christian, godly man get named by Time Magazine as somebody that they would look up to? You know, first of all, thanks for having me, Ken, on this program. And um, I'm honored to be a part of this and, and even honored in 2013 with Time Magazine. I, like you, and like many others, wonder, how is this even possible? But I do know that there's a route to this and that only God, God can place a Hispanic conservative in a liberal magazine, um, a guy who many believe, according to sociologists, is a status inconsistency. I should have never been on Time Magazine as Time 100, but God. And that just tells me, Ken, that God has a purpose. And can I just say to your viewers that God is in the business of using unusual people. He's in the business of doing that. And I'm just one of many. And, and, and when I got on Time Magazine, I was shocked. And I went to New York for the Time 100 dinner. And, and all these movie stars and all these celebrities. And my wife were there and I were there and representing the church. Representing the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, we just felt so honored to to be able to be there and represent the church. And isn't it funny when you meet people like that? Because you you know their personal persona. And then when you get to meet them, you you realize two things, especially when it comes to artists and actors, musicians, is that they're just normal people. And most of them are a lot more insecure than the rest of us. You know, they just need Jesus. Yeah, man. yeah, yeah. I mean, they just need Jesus. And that's what I was there for, to represent the body of Christ. But to know that God is is doing things and and the the movie stars that I met and the celebrities and and authors of books and chefs that I met that day, Elizabeth and I and met Dr. Oz in the elevator, talking with him. And again, it was just the exposure. And that's where the church should be anyway. The church should always be present no matter what it is and, and not be afraid of what's going on in culture. But. I, again, we were we were just so amazed and humbled, humbled by the the invitation. But to be on Time Magazine, Ken, not once but twice, back to back months. One on the reformation of the Hispanic, and then the following month with the Time One Hundred. That alone was just was just an honoring experience, and you have to steward that. As a man, you have to steward the platform that God has given you, and that's what we're trying to do. Right there, man. I mean, there's two sides of it. And, and Jesus is always talking about he's judging this by our intentions. But what's going on on the inside? You know, this, this Sermon on the Mount. It's not just what you do. It's why you did it. And so we see a lot of people with false modesty. And we see a lot of people who are godly who hide what they do. It's like, no, man, serve Jesus in a humility that says, I'm, I'm okay with the world seeing it because the world needs to see godly men and women standing up for him, not for my ego or so I can fit in, but so that he can be praised and this message can get out there. And, and that's why it's important to have guys like you on Time Magazine doing this because 
you're not a guy that's worried about what people think of you. You're worried about a guy that understands I represent my, my Lord and my father. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and I am at the service of the king and anybody in their right mind would know that it was only God. You can't even campaign for this, Ken. You can't campaign for this. This is not something there are tens of thousands of pastors and leaders around the country, around the world that would love to be on time magazine. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's one of those things. Even with the dinner, I told my wife, Elizabeth, babe, let's chew this and spit it out. Let's go back to the hood. This is awesome, but this is not who we are. We represent the kingdom and we're about saving souls. We chew this like a bubble gum, but then we spit it out and throw it in the garbage and move on. And we praise the Lord for that. So let's talk about the hood. Uh, Southside Chicago, born and raised, same church for decades, which you became the pastor of for 19 years. Um, how do you get from that background of, you know, all the fatherlessness, all the violence, all that, that happens with young boys in those instances trying to fit in? How does how do you come out of there so godly and end up being a leader and not just a leader of Latinos, but a leader of the church, the whole broad church of Christ. How, how do you fit all that in? Where to come from? How do you do it? You know, Ken, when you live in the in the city of Chicago or any inner city, you you you're it begins to shape you, right? Because my father abandoned me when I was eight years old, and he abandoned my mom with six children. Man, oh man. I remember going through seven grammar schools. I remember. Uh, failing third grade because I couldn't read or write, you know, and this is obviously my journey. And so you have no other recourse. You're surrounded by white gangs and black gangs and Hispanic gangs that you really have to create some sort of um, stamina and perseverance to continue to fight your way through. And and when I when I came to Jesus Christ at 14, when I came to Jesus Christ at 14, I used that same perseverance and fighting attitude that we, we could do this. You know, I was like, there, there was a part of me that was like Peter and there was a part of me like, uh, you know, like uh, Caleb. Give me this mountain. We could do this. I've seen the hand of God. And so my community, my upbringing shaped me, massaged me to what God had for me to fight now for righteousness, to stand up for what is right in a culture today. So all that that I went through, being chased by gangs, by confronted by black gangs in front of the church, and I stood up my ground, I stood my ground, and they, you know my gang members were coming and said, what do you represent? And I said, I represent Jesus Christ. What do you represent? And they would say their affiliation, their, their gang, and I would shake their hand, they would shake my hand, and we move on. So I wasn't afraid to represent Jesus Christ. So in that in that little corner, Chicago has 77 communities. Humble Park is one of them. So in that community, God was shaping and molding a, a man that he was going to one day put on Time magazine and use that stay, same attitude towards invading hell uh, and uh, and be able to go out and reach lost people for Jesus. So I think my community really shaped me. The lack of, of a father in my life, he became my father. And um, and I praise the Lord. I praise the Lord that in that same community that I was born and raised, I raised my three children. 
We raised our local church there that we, we pastored for 19 years. And God really gave us victory in many fronts, in many fronts. Chaco, did you ever uh, find your dad? Have you talked to him since you were eight years old? You know, Ken, yeah, yeah. I um, I remember ooh, maybe four years ago, four or five years ago, they were about to amputate his legs. And he's in New Jersey. My father now is 93. And they were going to amputate his legs. And we had a family meeting. When I say we, my siblings, and said, my brothers, my sisters, and hey, what are we going to do? Finally, we ended up flying him from from Jersey to Chicago. And I remember him being in my house, this man who abandoned my mom, who abandoned me. I'm, I'm in my 50s around this time, Ken. And I remember looking at his wounds and taking down his pants and try to clean his wounds. I remember thinking to myself, I have zero questions. I have zero. I don't, I have no questions for this man, why he abandoned my mom, why did he abandon me? Because at this point in my life, Ken, I'm a man. I, 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 um, I have children, I'm a grandfather, but I do want this man who's in front of me, who's my biological father, to know about my heavenly father. And uh, I wanted him to know the love of Jesus. And sure enough, you know, my father didn't have to amputate his legs. After a year or so and a half, we shipped him, send him back to New Jersey because that's where he wanted to go and be there and finally, uh, you know, end up his life there. But when he went back to Jersey, he went into a local church, an AG church, and someone took a picture with a picture of him lifting his hands, worshiping the Lord. Now, you need to know, Ken, and all your viewers and listeners, my dad never entered either uh, a Pentecostal church. He was raised in Catholicism, but even that, he wasn't even a practicing Catholic. But to go to a evangelical church and worship the Lord, it can only be that he saw the love of Jesus Christ through his younger son that he abandoned. And so I did see him four or five years ago. We do. I was just with him in July. I was preaching in New York, rented a car, made a pit stop to New Jersey, had some soup with him. And again, you know, I'm a man. At this point, I just want him to know Jesus and have a relationship with Christ. You know, I mean, I think there's a lot that you said there that's incredibly important. And, uh, you know, if I had a dollar for every man I've met who, be it in his 50s, 60s, 70s, his life is still dominated by what he didn't think he got from his father or abuse or abandonment or whatever, who still held back and who those wounds now translate to his kids. And and I think what you said there is so amazing. Um, you're, you're a son of, of God. You know, all, all that guy did was was donate some sperm. He's supposed to have cherished you and 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 taken his God-given responsibility to raise you into a man, but he didn't. So it, it for all of us as men, it's time for us to move on and say, there may be some deep wounds there, but let me seek the Father, seek other brothers in Christ, get counseling if I need to, but move on it because now I'm a man and I'm responsible for what I do with my kids. Yeah, you, I mean, you think about it, those, those wounds that these men that are watching, and I want to be able to sympathize with my brothers that are watching. It, they're real. Those are real. But here's the reality that I can't cry about spilled milk for 41 years. Uh, I'm, I'm 57 today. 
and he abandoned me when I was eight. So for 51 years, I've not had a physical father in my life. When? When am I going to move on? When, I'm go- when am I going to stop crying about spilled milk? That's what men do. Men do. We, we, we as men, uh, we, we, we look at the pain, we take the pain, and, and the pain shapes us, molds us to be better fathers, uncles, sons of God, uh, husbands, grandfathers, members of local churches. It shouldn't be that 51 years later, I'm talking to Ken. I can't believe my father left me. This is really bad. You know, that really hurt me. And, you know, Ken, I graduated my doctorate degree. I went through all level of education after failing third grade. (laughs) And I just was confirmed in 2018. My dad was in none of those graduation. Neither was my mom. But nevertheless, you know who was in the crowd? My children. My wow, grandchildren, that's cool. they were in the crowd. And so we got to we gotta be able to pick up this cross and move on, guys. We got to move forward. You can't, can't let the past dictate your future. And I'm not going to hold any grudge towards this man who's my biological father. Uh, I want to be able to show the love of Jesus to him too, to, to him too. And that's why I told you and to your viewers, I had zero questions. I moved on. It's his loss. And it, and he has to deal with those issues. That's There's nothing I can do about him. It's not like I prohibited him from coming to Chicago and being a part of all these events. He didn't know about Time Magazine again. He was clueless that one of his sons was on Time Magazine. He was clueless. And I think even today, he's still clueless. I don't even know if he knows that I'm the general treasurer for the largest Pentecostal movement in the world. <laughs> but it's okay. I move on. I have moved on. So you had said earlier, AG, and for those who don't know, that means Assemblies of God. Um, yeah. You know, and I don't, I, I can't relate to that. You know, I had a very strong father. My dad was a professional boxer at LA Cop. He was shot in the Watts riots. So I had a dad I could really look up to. He was a hard man, but he was at every one of my basketball games. You know, he was, he was always there. Um, but I would say <clears throat> on a different side of it, you know, I hurt my back. I sprained my back a few years ago, extremely painful. Um, so what did I do with that wound? I had to really learn how to stretch. I stretch a lot every day. My back has gotten a lot better. I could have later on said, well, I have a bad back, or I could do the hard work of making my back better. That's a physical wound. You're talking about spiritual wounds, but they're wounds. And, and we men, you either take the steps to make them better or you don't. And if you don't, you end up laying on the couch with a bad back whining or you end up you know, t- taking out your spiritual wounds on other people. Or you say, as, as my father's son, my father in heaven's son, I will do whatever it takes to be the best representative for him that I can be because there's work to be done in this kingdom. Because we got teenagers who are cutting because we're going to have 127 suicides today and tomorrow and the next day. And 80 percent of those will be middle aged men. And I need to be about my father's business taking care of those issues. Let's talk about, so as if we, what we just talked about wasn't, wasn't strong or deep enough. Let's talk about race. <laughs> Cause we're already going to talk religion and politics. We might as well talk about race, whatever we could do to make people as offended as possible, Chaco. But <laughs> race is so at the forefront of everything right now. And there's this, this thing, I think a lot of people don't know, like, where do I fit in on that conversation? Because on the one hand, 
we've heard comments that say, well, I'm so godly that I'm colorblind. I don't even notice race, which I don't think is a very helpful thing because race is real. Culture is real. And the wounds that people have experienced from the background of being Latino or black or Asian or, or whatever it might be, American Indian, those are, are real things. But at the same time, we want our identity to be, to be in Christ. You, you want to be a son of God who sees me as your brother in Christ way more than you want to be Latino and you see me as a Swedish guy, right? I always hate saying white because what, what is white? Like it's all these different races, right? So there's not really a white race. Latino is a, is a genuine race. It's 21 different countries, um, you know, across America. A lot of them don't like each other anyway. And we do a great disservice to Latino people when we lump them all into one group as if there's one culture, which there's not. So help us unpack that as a guy who's lived the forefront of that. You've been at the forefront of poor ethnic America and then risen out to be a leader in the church. How should people view race within the church? Well, it's a good question. And I think for me to unpack this, Ken, we first need to understand that we're not the first generation to deal with the problem of diversity. Amen. Uh, that, that stems from the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, the lawyer comes to Jesus and uh, Jesus gives him the scenario. Uh, the, the priest came down the road and, and he walked over the other side. The Levite came from Jerusalem and he walked the other side. Uh, he says, then a Samaritan came and helped the man who was wounded on the road that's called the bloody road from Jericho to Jerusalem. And the Samaritan came and helped him bandage his wounds, take him to the inn. And Jesus gives him all that scenario. And then he asked a question to the lawyer, which one of these was the neighbor? And if you look at the answer in the Bible, the lawyer said the latter one. He didn't even have the audacity to say Samaritans. He, 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 he couldn't even say Samaritan. That's how racist he was towards those group of people. So please understand that racism is real. It's ungodly. It's ungodly. It's a sin. When, when I have a, when I have a issue with my white brother or my black brother or my Asian brother, when you have those issues, then I think this is my opinion, Ken, I think that you think you're an American when you have those issues. And I've been preaching around America telling people, when I got saved, I put down the Puerto Rican flag. I put down the American flag and I picked up the flag of righteousness. When you see yourself as a citizen of heaven, you now understand that the country or the kingdom we come from are, is not black or white or Asian or whatever. We are now one family. We're a family if you are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So we need, to, we need to understand that racism is a sin. We also need to understand that when we talk about diversity in our churches, let me just, let me just cause freedom, cause freedom to my white brother churches or black brother churches or Hispanic. Now I use the term Hispanic, Ken, because when we use Latino, we're assuming that everybody's from Latin America and, and the, the Caribbean islands are not Latin America, whether it be Cuban or Santo Domingo or Puerto Rico, those are Caribbean islands. So Hispanic is a better terminology, I think, to, to put 
Mexico, Panamanians, Argentinians, and Spain, whatever. You know, it's interesting for you to say that because when I was on the LAPD, they switched. We used to say in the 80s, it used to always be male Mexican if we were describing someone Hispanic. And then they moved it in 1989 to Hispanic. So yeah. then, you know, we would be in our radio saying Hispanic. And then I used to get Mexicans and El Salvadorians and Guatemalans be really angry and say, we're not Hispanic, we're Latino. So, so, yeah. so I'll use Hispanic for now. And I'm still going off my 30-year-old LAPD lecturing by Central Americans. No, no, we're Latino. Okay, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, Hispanic is the language more than anything. It's not an ethnicity. It went, if, right. if a Mexican... Uh, it's more, hey, you are Hispanic because you speak Spanish. Uh, Guatemala or Costa Rica or Puerto Rico, you are you are Spanish speaking. That's what that means. It doesn't mean that you're from the Caribbean islands. It just means you are Spanish speaking. So, you know, I don't know. People get roughed uh, up. And, right. I didn't know but, what that meant. That's interesting. I asked Sam Rodriguez, yeah, one, yeah, what's yeah. the difference between Latino and Hispanic, and I don't remember getting an answer. I'm sure he knows that because he's Puerto Rican too, but uh, I didn't, yeah, I didn't he is know. Puerto Rican. So now we all know Hispanic is better than Latino because Latino only refers to people from Latin America, but Hispanic means so. So I guess somebody from Spain would be Hispanic. It would be Hispanic, Hispanic, yeah. Oh, speak Spanish. Who knew? I'm getting an education. They're Hispanic. I mean, they're yeah. Europe, European. But his, yeah, so that, and to your point, it's not an ethnicity. So when I got into of the police car one day, I had a brand new partner and he gets in. And as soon as he gets into the police car, you know, he's got a Hispanic name. He says, I'm not Mexican, you know, which, OK, you know, I was raised in Oregon. So what do I know? And so, uh, OK, I said, what are you, Puerto Rican? Man, this guy was so angry. It's a good thing I was a lot bigger than him because he would have he would have attacked me. And he let me know he was Cuban. And and then for the next eight hours, I got this lecture about all the different Hispanic countries and how they're all ranked and Cubans were at the top. <laughs> and so never guess you know, that was, that was his opinion, man. We, we Cubans are up here and everybody else. So don't you ever, ever guess that somebody from Cuba is from somewhere else. So, you know, there's a whole thing there that goes on. And, and to, to the point of earlier, is. when we lump everybody into this big thing as if it's one group, it's, it's not, it's not any fair to say that all Hispanics are the same as to say that all white people are the same. Cause Certainly, it, Italians are, are not anything like the Irish, and the Irish are nothing like the Russians. You know, so when we say white, well, what, what, what does that what does that mean? It, it, now, in America, we're melted in enough to where it doesn't matter. But, man, I'll tell you what, if you call an Irish from Ireland Italian, you're going to have a problem on your hands. So we just need to, yeah, to yeah. Sort of all that for everybody, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, you know, diversity is in the local church. Many pastors desire diversity. And, and what I wanted to give to those pastors that are watching and listening is that diversity is a cute word. It's a romantic word. We yearn for that. But here's the reality. Don't kill yourself. Don't kill yourself. If you're surrounded by all black people in your community, it's a good chance you're going to have a black church. And if you are in Barrington, Illinois, and it, it's a good <laughs> chance you're going to be all white church. You know, and if you're in Humble Park, Chicago, it's a good chance you're going to have black, Hispanic and a little bit of white because that's the demographic. So you can't be what you're not surrounded by and, and don't kill yourself. People are busing in people. They're blessing in black kids, Hispanic kids or white kids so that they can get that diversity. And you're going to kill yourself. You, it, it, God causes that. 
He causes it. Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't outreach. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't reach out to Hispanics or black or help another church that's that's doing it. But, you know, we, we yearn as the body of Christ to represent. And when I think of myself as a citizen of heaven and Ken, he's a citizen of heaven, then we're brothers. Black, white, Hispanic, don't make a difference. It, it, that's not at the table. What's at the table is that we represent Jesus and we represent the kingdom of God and we legislate his love here on planet Earth. Today's episode is brought to you through the generosity of Waterstone. For nearly 40 years, Waterstone has assisted givers in supporting their favorite charities like Promise Keepers by crafting customized innovative giving solutions. Waterstone gift strategists stand ready to create your personalized charitable plan utilizing business interests, real estate, appreciated assets, charitable trusts, giving funds, and more. These donor-specific giving strategies allow givers to bypass capital gains taxes, receive a fair market value charitable deduction, and have tax-free growth for years to come. Prioritize income, minimize taxes, and optimize your giving with Waterstone. Find out how to give and receive the most from your assets by visiting www.waterstone.org. Don't you think diversity has become an idol in some regards? Isn't that what you're really talking about? Is that some churches uh, were, were so concentrating on diversity that we're forgetting, let's just preach the word of God. Yeah, it, it's insane. It's insane that people want it so bad that they would denounce their own. I'm not going to denounce that my mother is Spanish and that she was born in Puerto Rico and that I love rice and beans and I love the salsa music. I'm not going to denounce that. I love that music. I love that meal. But I've seen this culture today. you got to denounce that you're white. You got, are you insane? Are you crazy? This is who you are. This is who I am. And, and, I, and in my Hispanicness and you and your whiteness, we are citizens of heaven and we represent the love of Jesus. I don't push. I don't push the Puerto Rican flag. I don't. I push the flag of the kingdom of heaven. I've been telling men and people in the local churches, I've been saying to pastors as well, you don't represent the donkey or the elephant. You represent the lion from the tribe of Judah. That's who we represent here in the United States. And this is where confusion lies in. Who are we? Right? We lost our identity as men. Hollywood have, has incarcerated the man. And I've been traveling around men's retreats and conferences trying to uncage the men and say, hey, take your place in the community. Take your place at home. Take your place at the local church. It's been said that when a man stands up, the boy sits down. I'm telling men, they need to stand up in their community as citizens of heaven. I'm, I'm, I'm getting excited, man. So so when you talk about let's go back to, to something off the race thing, because I'm much more excited about talking about you being raised without a father. Did, did you have men who poured into you? Did that make a difference in your life? Did you have uh, guys that, that discipled you, that mentored you, that you could look up to and showed you how to be a man? No. Mm. And yet you turned out to be a man anyway. That's interesting. 
Yeah, it is. Uh, I say that, Ken, with trepidation. I mean, you know, I was raised in my community and in my family, there was divorces everywhere. There was drinking everywhere. And even when I went to the local church, there was no man who kind of took me in and, and, you know, and allow me to see a healthy marriage, a healthy family. Uh, other than my pastor who ended up being my, ended up turning up to be my father-in-law. And uh, wow. so it's unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. It's unfortunate that all the warts you had, it, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's unfortunate. So then I now had to play that role when I became the, when I became the pastor, I now had to play that role to become a healthy marriage. What does it look like to speak into children that were fifth grade or fourth grade to the single mothers that were bringing their kids to me? So what I did not have, I now wanted to become for those single mothers who have their children and there is no male role model. Um, so as a pastor, when I became a pastor of the church, there were spiritual pastors who did model like a Tommy Barnett uh, of what would look like to reach a city. So I did have that. But growing up, you just had a group of guys and, you, you know, they, those guys who were 15, 16, 17, and they became your friends and they helped you guys kind of, you know, iron sharpens iron. And those guys today, after 40 years, Ken, they're still in the church. We, we've stood together all these years. And they had absence of fathers too. The guys you were hung up with, they were fatherless. So we became brothers, if you will, spiritual brothers, and we helped each other. And today they're all serving the Lord, some are pastors, and doing a phenomenal job in Chicago. So one of the things that you did to be proactive, because obviously when it came to being a father and a good husband, um, you were lacking some of the instructions some other people got to have, right, from a dad. One of the things it sounds like you did was you banded up with other men so that you could share your experiences and walk through these experiences together. And, and that, that benefited you for your whole life. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Other men that I grew up and with and saw them and things that they did and decisions they made that I thought it was great to, oh, this is how you do with your daughter. This is what you do with your son. And okay. And then we kind of share stories of what we did and uh, raising our children. Remember, I had no fathers to to have a model of what it looked like a healthy marriage, a healthy family, how to raise children. So where do I get that from? I gave, I got that from, you know, people within that circle of mine that we were raised together and we begin to have children. And we would share stories. Hey, this is what I did. You know, when my kid got in trouble, this is what I did. Uh, but that kind of been it was elevated once I became a pastor that now I'm taking a more of a role model role to younger, younger uh, married couple men when it came to budgeting, when it came to sex, when it came to raising your children, I was able to give them more concrete, uh, concrete uh, advice. Yeah, it's funny because when you don't have that, the things that you don't know what you don't know is something we used to say in business all the time. And I remember getting a call from a, a, a guy a few years ago who was deeply confused. His marriage, he'd been married for a few months. His marriage was already on the rocks and he loved his wife. And I said, well, let's talk this through. And as we're talking it through, he told me about a recent fight they had. 
you know, and I said this and she said that, and I said this and she said that. And then I said, and he used the F word, F you. And I'm like, well, let's stop there for a minute. <laughs> you know, do you think maybe that might be a part of the problem? And he actually was, was like, really like that? Yeah. For a wife to be talked to by like that, by her husband, that was devastated her. But it was interesting for me and eye opening for me to realize he really had no clue. Like he really needed a mature man to walk him through that we don't use the F word in, a, in an argument with our wife and expect everything's just going to be okay five minutes later. It's amazing, you know, how because of the lack of training and the lack of, uh, of understanding the role of a man, mm. when you don't understand the role, think about it for a moment, those guys that are watching me right now. When God came into the Garden of Eden, notice who he called out for. He called out for Adam. Although Eve was in the garden, she was at the proximity of the father as well. But he called out Adam as to say, Adam, I put you in charge of this house. I put you in charge of this garden. I want to talk to you. I don't want to talk to your wife. I want to talk to you. And, and I try to teach men across this country. He's going to come. He's going to knock on your door and he's going to say, Ken, I know your wife is there, but I want to talk to you. I want to know why you're not praying with them. I want to know why you're not teaching your kids. I, I, I put you in charge of this home to love them, to protect them, to teach them. I gave you the male title, right? I tell men now that I travel, because you got to be clear. I said, guys, I'm a man and I was born a man. Praise the Lord. And I don't have no qualms about saying that I am a man. But with that comes responsibility. Comes a responsibility to become the priest of the home, to become the servant of the home, to become the protector of the home. And, and we need to understand our role. And we cannot let Hollywood to define what our role is. We know what the Bible tells us what we should do. So I want to ask you about a quote you had said that is, is really good. And just to give you a chance to expound on it, because I think it's great. This is you um, in an interview. Sometimes when you start growing, if you're not careful, you start losing touch with the sheep. We pastors should never stop smelling like sheep. The more we grow, the more intentional we must be to stay directly connected to the sheep. Whether you get to 1,000 people or 5,000 people or 500 people, we must remember the sheep. Where were you going with that, man? Yeah, you know, that comes out of uh, 1 Samuel. When Samuel, the prophet, comes to Jesse's home and he's about to anoint the next king. King Saul is on his way out, and God told Samuel to go and, and find the next king. And he goes to Jesse's house, and he looks through those, the, his sons, and none of, them, none of them are it. And essentially, Samuel said, hey, do you have another son? And he said, well, I got David over here. He's taking care of the sheep, and, uh, you know, I'll call him in from the backyard, whatever. He calls, Jesse calls David the runt. That's the word he uses. Yeah, yeah, the runt, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so he, he brings in the younger boy who's taking care of the sheep, comes before the prophet. You can imagine, I'm only paraphrasing, that David comes into the house cleaning himself. He's smelling, what's going on, dad? And uh, he said, well, the prophet's here, the man of God. And then the Lord tells Samuel, anoint him. He's the guy. So after he gets anointed, Ken, after David gets anointed as the king, of Israel, the next king. Notice what he does next. He goes back to the sheep. 
to take care of the sheep for another 20 years. Uh, he doesn't become king into 20 years after that anointing. So that tells me as a pastor, after we get this anointing of becoming a pastor, go back to the sheep. Don't stop smelling like a sheep. Even though you've been anointed the king, even you've been anointed the prophet or the apostle, you cannot stop smelling like a sheep. And, you know, and that's what I did in Chicago. I was in the lobby area. We were running five services on a Sunday and a weekend. Thousands of people were coming in out. I was in the lobby, hugging people, kissing people, you know, just fist pumping people. Uh, I wanted to make sure that I always smell like a sheep. I love that, man. I remember when I went to uh, Charles Stanley's church in Atlanta uh, a few years ago, how impressed I was. There he was in the lobby, like the good old Baptist pastor he is, still shaking people's hands. You know, he's having to hold himself up. He could barely stand up straight. But there he was in the lobby, no matter how big that man is, no matter how great of a preacher, no how many book, best-selling books, he was in the lobby shaking people's hands. I just loved, I thought that that was one of the most touching things for me to see him standing right there, barely even able to stand up straight, shaking hands. Amen. Amen. We need to. We, men need that. I mean, the, the young boys need that, that, that we, we're approachable. Uh, I may be the general treasure for the sons of God, but... I don't never want to stop smelling like a sheep. And, you know, we have our, I remember we had our, our we just had our convention in August and over 20,000 people were there. I was in the lobby area. I was in the lobby taking pictures. Everybody wants to take a picture. Everybody wants to hug. Everyone wants to, oh, hey, Pastor Choco, hey. Yep. Yep. And it just keeps me grounded. Keeps me grounded. I'm nobody. Ken, I'm nobody. It, it, without Christ in my life, I'm nobody. And so for me to think, well, get me through the back door. You know, there's 20,000 people here. I want to go to my hotel. No. Uh -uh. Let me go through this crowd and uh, I'll make my way. It may take me an hour to get to my room, but uh, we, we just got, we can't stop smelling like a sheep. You know, in the world, the more people you're in charge of, the greater you are. But in the kingdom of heaven, the more people you serve, the greater you are. And uh, man, I don't ever want to lose sight of that, man. Uh, I didn't Amen. come up with that Amen. quote a friend of mine did, but it was good. So I thought I'd steal it. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> so, you know, what you said is real important as we, as we kind of wrap up, because uh, I know you got places you got to be. Um, you were just talking about Samuel anointing David. And, and for all the men out there, I always want to encourage them because there's so many guys that beat themselves up every day that feel inadequate. And they listen to shows like this, you know, because their wives told them to. Or because they really want to, to be something better, but they have that voice of the devil in their ear all the time saying, "Who you're not worthy. Remember what you did. Remember what you said. Who do you think you are? God doesn't want you. And I would remind those guys of, think about the sins that David committed. He not only did he commit adultery, that's what gets all the, the uh, press. Dude, he murdered her husband, who was his good friend, who was one of his mighty men. And then later on, he ignores justice for his daughter who gets raped by his son. And the civil war happens and 20,000 people die, all because Jesus, David wouldn't stand for justice because of his guilt over his sin. And then Samuel, the, the prophet doing the anointing many years later, he's allowing his sons to be utterly corrupt, so corrupt that God kills them both, which causes Israel to come and say, we're sick and tired of having prophets over us because you guys are all so corrupt. We want to start having kings and we start the, the whole tyrannical um, line of kings in, in Israel that lead them down the wrong road, all because, not, not necessarily because, but, but it came to fruition under Samuel, re refusing to stand up for justice against his own kids. So 
in the Bible, we see jacked up man after jacked up man after jacked up man, and God uses them. And I would say, you look at the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, every one of those people, from Rahab the prostitute to David the murderer that he calls out, every one of those people is jacked up. The one thing they all had in common, none of them ever backed down from a fight. That's who we need to be as men. We will stand for righteousness. Now, I would say, if you're going to start fighting and standing up for truth, you better darn well know what the truth is. And that's why we need to be in the word of God every day. So we're not standing up for the wrong issue. And that's why I want to talk about things like race with you and fatherlessness, because we need men to start getting involved. But we also, before you start getting involved, not clean yourself up, not try to be the perfect guy, but know God's word. So you know that you're fighting for the right thing because the propaganda of the world and the lies of Satan are in our ears all the time. If I'm going to fight, if I'm going to be a man holding the flag, I better darn well know what flag I'm holding. You know, just to kind of finish up here, Ken, I think it's a great point. You bring uh, Ezekiel twenty two thirty says, for I look among them for a man who would stand in the gap. Ezekiel twenty two thirty. I look among them for a man who would stand in the gap. And the Lord said, I found, I found no one. Nobody who had the audacity, the courage to be able to stand in the gap. And in the country we live in, in America, there are gaps everywhere, everywhere. And God has called us to take our position as men and take a stand. We're going to be challenged. We're going to be challenged because of our posture and because of our standards. But God is with us. You know, I was telling my wife today, I said, God seeks vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And you could be messed up. You could be messed up. But he's in the business. And I said it earlier in your program. He's in the business of using unusual people. I said to you that I am a status inconsistency. I should not be here at this with you, Ken, in this interview. I should be somewhere in Chicago, dead or in prison. But I should not be being interviewed about what a man looks like, but God. So you could be a mess. You could be a mess. You could have a pass. You could fail third grade. You could have been abandoned. And yet God says in Jeremiah, in chapter one, I will make sure that I will, what, what I have planned for you essentially will come to pass. My eyes will make sure. So it doesn't make a difference what you and I have gone through, my brothers that are watching or who abandoned us and who didn't do this for us. We know that the God of heaven is with us. And if he could do it for Choco, this Puerto Rican kid who felt third grade, abandoned by the father, it was destined for destruction for sure. And, and elevate him to Time Magazine, elevate him to General Treasurer, then he could do it for you, my brother. But you got to be vulnerable. You can't, you can't say, I can't wait to get it, you know, I want to get it perfect. You'll never be perfect. God uses imperfect men to do amazing things. So I hope this is blessing you. I hope it blesses you watching this. Be encouraged. Be that father that stands in the gap. Be that husband that stands in the gap and say, not on my watch. I prefer to go down. If I'm going to go down, I'm going to go to prison. I'm going to, but I'm going to go defending the rights of my children, the rights of my belief than to allow a culture to cancel me out. And I've been telling cancel culture, 
You can't cancel what you did not create. You did not create the church of Jesus Christ and not even the gates of hell will come against his church. So be encouraged, my brothers that are watching this. God is on his throne. Go be that husband, go be that servant, go be that priest in your community and go love your children. Hey, thank you for this time, my brother. Love you. Love you, man. Thanks for listening to On The Edge Podcast with Ken Harrison. For a lot of you, this is our first time meeting and I wanna tell the men listening about an organization I'm the current chairman of, Promise Keepers. Promise Keepers is an organization founded by Coach Bill McCartney that's led men across the world to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Promise Keepers is calling men back to courageous and bold servant leadership. To learn more and get involved in the mission of Promise Keepers, visit promisekeepers.org. Follow on social media or download the Promise Keepers app on Apple Store or Google Play by searching Promise Keepers. Through the Promise Keepers app, you'll receive access to devotionals, Bible studies, and other great articles and video content, and a community to build friendships, lead your family, and become transformative leaders. See you next time for On the Edge with Ken Harrison. This podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place for your listening enjoyment. Cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today. Download the Edify app for free from the App Store or Google Play or by going to edify.app. That's E-D-I-F-I dot app.